You are listening to a series of How to Stand episodes called Betrayals. Betrayals will cover different stories of times when fans felt disillusioned with their favorite celebrities, whether it be realizing that their idol didn't actually sing their own songs, to realizing that a child prodigy was actually not the child prodigy they, the media had claimed she was, to times where an entirely fake persona was crafted by celebrities. How fans react to that and why they react that way will be explored through a lot of different contexts through each of these stories. In 2004, four-year-old Marla Olmsted asked if she could paint alongside her dad, Mark, and when he said sure, they had no idea how that would change the course of their family's history going forward. Marla continued to paint, and her paintings would get hung up at the local coffee shop. The coffee shop owners one day asked Marla's parents what the selling price was for one of those paintings, and the parents just kind of laughed that off because they had never planned on selling this four-year-old's artwork. They hadn't thought much of it. They said two fifty, just at as if they were just going along with the joke, not sure what to expect. But sure enough, the shop owners willingly paid two fifty for one of Marla's paintings. But that doesn't mean the parents suddenly thought, wow, this is a big gold mine. We can make Marla an overnight sensation or anything like that. They did view this at first as just kind of a weird one-off situation. Like, that was odd. We didn't know her painting was that good. But if they say it is, I guess it is worth that much money. And so they just went along with it. Her mom even had the check photocopied as a token of sorts of this moment. But regardless of whether or not Marla's parents wanted her to have the same in fortune, it came. Starting with a local paper reporting on this incident where the painting had been sold, and followed by a New York Times story all about Marla that compared her to Jason Pollock, a well-known abstract artist who was known for doing the similar painting activities that Marla would do, like use a brush to sweep broad strokes across the paper in no particular order, and use a bright mix of colors. Marla then got featured in art shows in New York and LA, and her painting started being sold for hundreds and then eventually thousands of dollars, at one point three hundred thousand dollars, but the typical asking price would probably be around five to six thousand dollars for one of her paintings. But this value actually rose to twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars after the New York Times piece. She also appeared on Oprah and Papers around the world were reporting in awe over this child prodigy whose paintings were selling for so much money. But in February of 2005, 60 Minutes had an investigation of sorts, because no one had actually seen Marla paint something from start to finish, so the show set out to watch her do just that. There was initial resistance from Marla's parents, who insisted that Marla was just too camera shy of a child, and that would just not be a normal, comfortable environment for her to be surrounded by cameras, so she wouldn't paint normally, of course. They were basically implying that if you're trying to prove that we are the puppeteers behind Marla's paintings, it's not going to work because she would look, Marla would look uncomfortable anyway because of the cameras, so you're just trying to draw a conclusion that isn't there, essentially. But they eventually did negotiate and allowed this to happen, as long as the cameras would be hidden out of Marla's sight so that they wouldn't really affect her comfort level as she painted. So 60 Minutes installed a hidden camera in the room where Marla was painting, and they watched the footage while Ellen Winner, a child psychologist who has studied child prodigy specifically for years, was called in to observe Marla paint and share her thoughts. 
What they saw was Marla painting. They did not see a parent ever jump in there and paint for her directly, but they did hear a lot of comments from her dad from off camera, basically telling her what to do. Quotes like, paint the red, paint the red, you're driving me crazy, just paint the red. And this is not the way it should be, paint like you were before, things like that. After this came out, her dad claimed that he just felt pressured by the camera to act and that he wasn't normally that directly instructive over what Marla did. He just felt that pressure because of the camera. And Laura said, quote, she didn't pick the place, the time, she didn't pick when she got to paint. It was a false environment for her. Mark said, quote, it turned out to be more static and strict, and that's not the way she does it. Basically saying that we were right when we assumed that having a camera film Marla and having that weird new structure added to her painting environment would affect the outcome of her painting, and that it's not something that was the parents engaging in uh, deceptive behavior. Ellen Winner had a lot to say about what she had watched. After she saw 50 minutes of footage, she said, quote, this is eye-opening to me to see her actually painting because she's not doing anything that a normal child wouldn't do. She's just kind of slowly painting the paint around. She went on to say, quote, I saw no evidence that she was a child prodigy in painting. I saw a normal, charming, adorable child painting the way preschool children paint, except that she had a coach that kept her going. I don't see Marla as having made, or at least completed, the more polished-looking paintings because they look like a different painter. Either somebody else painted them start to finish, or somebody else doctored them up. Or Marla just miraculously paints in a completely different way than we see on her home video. She also pointed out that the child prodigies she has observed that are truly child prodigies have this natural glow as they work. When they're in their element, they have this natural joy that comes out of them, and this excitement and the passion is palpable. But Winner didn't see any of that here. Interestingly, Ellen Winner had actually said before watching all of the footage and hearing the dad order commands at his daughter, Marla's work was beautiful and deserved to hang in a museum. But afterwards, she said, quote, this was eye-opening to me to see her actually painting. She's not doing anything a normal child wouldn't do. Winner said that the child prodigies she has watched have certain types of painting behavior sometimes, but she's also never seen it in the way they are talking about abstract art. She said, quote, I have a drawing of Picasso at age nine. It shows that Picasso was struggling to draw realistically, and he was way ahead of his age. Basically arguing that abstract art, even for Picasso, is kind of a weird fancy way to dress up describing just how kids paint. Mark and Laura both have continuously denied ever adding to any of the paintings that Marla has allegedly made. Mark said, quote, the media takes a story and does what they want with it. Ultimately, there are regrets. I felt very much like the pressure that was put on us and the pressure I put upon Marla. I regret that and feel a lot to blame, but he still strongly denies having any role in making the paintings. When Mark was asked if he ever helps Marla paint, he said, quote, I think we should define help. I do have to be involved, and I have, because she is, was a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and I help her by priming the canvas, by lifting her up over the canvas so she can reach certain points, helping her with the paints themselves as far as getting them into ketchup bottles. From that standpoint, yes, I help. On October 5th of 2007, a documentary was released called My Kid Could Paint That. 
and the documentary takes a look at this story, the 60 Minutes investigation, and other times when suspicions were raised about who actually painted these things, and could a four-year-old have done it, and if so, how much were the parents actually helping Marla, how much should she truly be considered a child prodigy, questions like that were provoked, and the documentary even does show an intense confrontation scene between the director of this project, Amir Barlev, and the parents of Marla. The director of this documentary said, quote, As soon as my doubts reached a point where they were strong enough that it wouldn't have been right to keep them from the Olmsteads, I told them, and that's the climax of the film. So he started making the film actually, not trying to make it a mystery, really. It was just about Marla as a child prodigy. But it turned into a bit of a mystery story after he started realizing more and more, I don't think Marla was actually the one to paint this. Although he doesn't overtly say that in the documentary and has remained cagey on that question in interviews about it, he has said, quote, I have a very hard time believing that a four-year-old did all those paintings, but I want to add that I have a very hard time believing her parents would be behind an exploitation of their kid. So he overall does admit a little bit in certain ways how he words his answers in interviews that he does not believe Marla did all that work herself, but he also doesn't want to, having spent so much time, hours and hours, making this documentary with this family, he developed a relationship with them. He was friendly with them and felt, felt like he knew them and it was weird and did not make sense to him for these people to be portrayed as these villains, as these stage parents in any way. He didn't see that opposite extreme as true either. So Marlo may not be a prodigy, but he also didn't view her parents as doing it all, essentially. Although he would not exactly assert that was his exact view, but he has said just as much if you read between the lines. And the documentary itself doesn't actually answer the question. It's very open-ended at the end about who actually made these paintings and how much they should be worth and how much talent Marla truly has. Marla is now a 20-year-old. There was an update in 2015 about her, and at that time she was 15 and she was a high school student who talked about how she doesn't remember those years of her life at all. So it's not like they scarred her by making her an overnight celebrity. She paints as a side hobby now but feels no pressure to make it a career or anything like that. And she has no intent on ever watching the documentary of what happened, doesn't seem interested. Some of her old paintings still get offers, but she's not selling them anymore, and her parents think that's for the best. So this is not like a never-ending grift after this documentary that it could have been. They kind of have closed this chapter in their lives as a family. And one might think that part of the reason why Marla is not the household name she may have been as a child is because the veil was lifted over this family and how potentially shady what was going on was or how deceptive truly this story was. That could have totally just tarnished the family's reputation. But that's not really the case of what happened here. Because first of all, after the 60 Minutes investigation was released, Marla's parents released footage they took of her painting, a different painting, which they called Ocean, and people realized that didn't look like what Marla traditionally painted or had painted in the other setting, but the interested buyers bought it anyway. The painting that Marla made during the 60 Minutes investigation still sold for $9,000, despite the documentary hinting that it wasn't worth the same it may have been if 
it had actually been painted by a true child prodigy, but it just became in higher demand due to the publicity of the 60 Minutes. There are some more broadly applicable larger themes here in the story of Marla Olmsted that are worth unpacking a bit. First of all, thinking about the concept of abstract art is very interesting because the concept of an art critic itself is very odd. No matter how much you try to be objective as a food critic, a music critic, an art critic, whatever it may be, there's never a 100% objective way to evaluate art because art is inherently subjective. What you view as a work of art is inherently subjective and everyone lives in this world. Unless you are living in a completely sheltered off hole somewhere, you are influenced by your surroundings and that will, subconsciously or not, influence how you review and think of that art overall. So as redundant as it sounds, abstract art has a very abstract definition. It's very fluid. What is viewed as great art versus just a child's scribbles. It can be the same work of art, but based on who decides it is worth a certain amount, that suddenly shifts for the entire society what that is worth. For example, these five to $6,000 paintings of Marla suddenly shot up to $20,000 in value after the New York Times deemed her scribbles works of art. Suddenly, a new characterization caused society to totally reevaluate her work, reevaluate it financially and just theoretically. How people review art is inherently influenced not just by certain influential media sources, but also by just the people they surround themselves with. If you are surrounded by people who have a lot of money and go to these big art auctions and things like that, and they are inclined to believe that the low cost of a painting is $9,000, for example, then maybe you do think that Marla's painting is worth the money. But if you don't spend your time around rich art critics, maybe, then you may view it as just scribbles that are overpriced. How you view the value of something is also influenced by your social settings and social class. This story also touches on the concept of just how art is always a socially constructed concept. And a bunch of different variables will always play into how much that art is worth based on the painter, not just the painting and its price as perceived by the media. An interesting relevant quote here from Jonathan Feinberg, the director of the Center for the Study of Modern Art at the Phillips Collection in Washington, quote, the work of Little Marla is actually no different than probably half a billion children in the world, except that the materials are a little different. People get fooled because they don't know the difference between that and the really serious stuff. That's where there's a problem. Time and time again, there have been experiments on groupthink, where people are basically interviewed and asked basic questions, like, let's just say, for example, 2 plus 2, which probably wouldn't be what they would ask you, but we're just using this as an example, if you are with a group of people and everyone in that group answers this person asking you what 2 plus 2 is by saying it's 5, suddenly you start to second guess yourself and think, is this a trick question? Is the answer really 4 still? I'm not sure anymore. My answer doesn't feel as valid right now because everyone else just said something different. And it's scary to not go along with that view. So anyway, experiments like that just show that we are inclined as humans to express agreement over disagreement. And so when you're surrounded by people who say, oh, this painting looks like it's worth thousands of dollars, you start to second guess yourself if you don't think so. You may say, oh, what do I know? They're probably right. It actually is worth that much, even if you think it's much less. 
So that's also something to keep in mind here when thinking about how paintings are viewed as art versus nothing. It's a lot based on groupthink and socialization in its many forms. So the social construction of art, and especially abstract art, and how that is quite a debated definition and category of art, ties into my second of three main takeaways from this story, which is how we socially construct the definition of a child prodigy and push that child prodigy narrative sometimes, perhaps just because we subconsciously really want it to be true. It's really cool and exciting to think that you've discovered the next Picasso or something. The actual definition of a child prodigy has significantly shifted over time and still is debated to this day, but the most widely accepted definition is a child who is under the age of 10, who creates products, physical things that are, whether it be through showing that they play an instrument a certain way or write music or paint or whatever, they have this output that looks like it would be adult level, uh, production level, adult levels of art, of artistry in any way, shape, or form. But again, the age range is a bit debated sometimes. Mozart didn't actually write his first opera until he was 12, but anyway... A child prodigy tends to be defined by a specific skill set as opposed to emotional intelligence, which I also find interesting, that it's more about they play chess really well or they are a science whiz or whatever. When it comes to emotionally complex concepts, that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about technical skill level. This runs contrary to why people buy into the narrative of child prodigies when sometimes maybe that label isn't super applicable because, ironically, these skills that child prodigies are known for that are very technical or logic-based tap into emotional needs of the audience. The director of the documentary said, quote, I think in a lot of ways it wasn't about the art she was making so much as it was about a sense that people were buying a piece of childhood. In the film, you see m people move to tears when they talk about her, and there was the sense that because she was so young, she hadn't yet been corrupted by the things that corrupt the rest of us as we get older. And that may be a huge part of why people really desperately want to believe that this child is a prodigy, that her work is worth that much, because they want to feel like society has collectively decided that the what is so super valuable are the innocent, pure paintings produced by a child who has not been corrupted by the outside world as much yet. People want to buy back that childhood and that imaginative frame of mind, and they feel like that's what they're buying. It's so much more than just a painting, and so they seek one another to validate that view of that painting as really being worth that much. The third larger issue that the story touches on is the concept of stage parents and how certain parents are very, compared to dance moms and the like, or pageant parents, how much parents may be involved in when kids get famous and how they can use that for nefarious ends. But what's interesting is that this story on its surface seems like that, and then if you really look deeper, I personally don't see it as being at play like people may want to frame it as. The documentary director again said, quote, it's as much a film about cameras as it is about paintbrushes, which I think sums up a lot. It's a lot about what you see happen as opposed to what is actually the context you're watching, but it's the framing of it that is interesting to people. As an admitted true crime fan myself, I do have this tendency when I'm 
reading a, a story to try to figure out what is going on that's a bit shady or maybe not as honest as they want you to believe, which characters may be uh, not necessarily a villain in the situation, but maybe not as innocent as they let on, who might be being deceptive and pulling some strings in this equation. But sometimes there's just no there there. And I think that is the case here, where people really want to villainize Marlo's parents for maybe just putting catapulting her into the spotlight and then ending up actually, it turns out that the parents were the ones doing the painting. It's up to you still to be the judge, because like I said, no one has officially ever proven if Marla has actually physically painted everything herself and if she has is that even impressive or is that just what every other kid is painting and she just got an exceptional level of prestige attached to her name thanks to media that's all still up for debate but what I don't see is up for debate much anymore are the motives of her parents maybe they did get famous through Marla but was that their goal probably not did they actually, you know, exploit their child in a way? It doesn't sound like it because Marla herself has said she doesn't even remember this time in her life and her parents have kind of shut down any thought of her still selling her paintings to this day. That chapter is closed in their lives. It's not like a long-standing grift of theirs. So ultimately, what this story gets at are three main things. One being the concept of what is art and who is defining what is art and how are they choosing to define it? What framework are they using to reach that valuation? Second thing is just the role of child prodigies and why we as a society really want to uplift certain people and view them as these supernatural beings, essentially, of doing above, going above and beyond and doing things at skill levels that are just magical. We want to be surprised and just elated by what kids can do. And all of that, all that says about our emotional states as we get older and how much we want to reclaim a sense of youth. And the third thing is the role of stage parents and how much that is something worth discussing, but also how sometimes it is a label that is un, uh, without evidence put onto parents of kids who became famous without really intending to become famous. That is essentially what happened with Marla Olmsted and my take on it. After the break, a story about an adult who was much more overtly deceptive about who he was. In the 50s and 60s, Timothy Patrick Barris was growing up in Lansing, Michigan in a middle-class community. He engaged in a lot of theatrical antics. He was a theater kid and he tended to embellish his storytelling among his peers. He became known as someone who it was hard to tell when during his story the truth ended and the lies began. He eventually became a social worker and on the side he was coined, he essentially is given credit for coining the phrase leather literature as an erotica writer. He once contributed to an erotica photo exhibit that was so poorly attended that under a pseudonym, he wrote an op-ed essentially scathing the event, a scathing op-ed that was published in the Weekly News, and this negative review of the photo exhibit drew so much attention that it turned into a high turnout event the next night of it. Early on, before greater schemes would come about, larger in scale, he was already realizing that all press can be good press in some way and you can turn it to your advantage somehow. In 1993, after he had been living in San Francisco for some time, Timothy married Tina Giovanni and they left San Francisco never to be heard from again. 
1999, Esquire received a manuscript submission from someone named Nasdij, N-A-S-D-I-J-J, who pointed out that their lack of Native American writers was concerning to him, and he wanted to share a very open, vulnerable post for the magazine about his son who had died from fetal alcohol syndrome. His essay submission was called The Blood Runs Like a River Through My Dreams, and it became such a well-received, high-praise essay that was super vulnerable, opening, opening up about a young son's death, and just being vulnerable in a way that fathers often don't feel like they have permission societally to do. But this new author, Nasdij, did. And so his piece became a National Magazine Awards finalist that same year. The next year, in 2000, Nasdij got to release a collection of essays, including that essay that really sparked his fame, The Blood Runs Like a River Through My Dreams. That same year, it was also chosen as the New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and the book went on to win several other awards. In 2002, when asked at a forum to clarify his lineage, Nasdij said, My literary lineage is Athabascan. I hear changing woman in my head. I listen to trees, rocks, deserts, crows, and the tons of wind. I am Navajo, and the European things you relate so closely to often seem alien and remote. I do not know them. Very much affirming his Navajo identity and upbringing. In 2003, Nasdij published a second memoir called The Boy and the Dog Are Sleeping, which won a Pen America Center Award. And in 2004, a third memoir was published, titled Geronimo's Bones, A Memoir of My Brother and Me. Also in 2004, the former Paramount International TV Group Vice President, James Dowalibi, got the film rights to The Boy and the Dog Are Sleeping. He was so entranced by the writing from the book and instantly knew he wanted to make it into a movie about this Navajo man and his upbringing. He wished more dads could see it and that he had seen more writing. He wished that was more common for dads to open up and be so vulnerable in their writing. And so he wanted to bring that vulnerability to the big screen, saying, quote, I never seen a book that so articulated a father's love for his son. But Dowalibi grew suspicious as day after day while prepping for the movie, he sought more answers about Nasdij's past and Nasdij gave no specifics. He would be very vague about times and places in his life and would not overtly answer a lot of questions that were posed to him. Yet Dao Libby was still determined to find a way to go through with filming this movie, despite realizing there may be a lack of credibility and fact-checking ability here. He said, quote, Admitting it was fiction would have ruined the emotional truth, the core of the book. The movie continued to be billed as a work of nonfiction, as opposed to just inspired by true events, because they, he worried that would get rid of the, the weight the movie could carry and the impact it could have on how fathers see themselves on screen. In January of 2006, the journalist Matthew Fleischer released the LA Weekly article titled Nava Hoax, which revealed the actual Nasdij was Timothy Patrick Barris pretending to be a Navajo man. All of the lies were revealed one by one, and many in this piece called Navajoax, including that Nasdij was born on a Navajo reservation in a Hogan in 1950. He had also claimed to have an abusive father who was white and an alcoholic Navajo mother who died at age seven. He claimed he had fetal alcohol syndrome himself, 
and he told the story of someone named Tommy Nothing Fancy, who was the name of his son. He claimed that Tommy Nothing Fancy was adopted by him and his wife and raised on a Navajo reservation until Tommy Nothing Fancy died at age six from fetal alcohol syndrome. Many started lifting the veil off of Nas Deej's lives in addition to this journalist. First of all, experts on fetal alcohol syndrome pointed out all the ways that the symptoms of it were mischaracterized or just overall falsified and not written about accurately in these books. Secondly, Sherman Alexis, a Spokane tribe member and author, wrote to Nas Deej's publisher, complained about all of the inconsistencies he saw and the mischaracterizations of what it would be like as a Navajo person. He also talked to Nasdidge's editor, but despite Sherman Alexis's pleas, not much came of his request for someone to take official action against Nasdidge for impersonating a Navajo man and pretending some struggles he had lived through had happened when that was all a lie. He eventually realized that not only did Nasdidge's writings make him feel seen, though, in a certain way, it was his story, but that it was literally his story. It wasn't just relatable. Nasdidge apparently had actually been just copying and pasting bits of, of Navajo stories into his work, including the works of N. Scott Mamaday, Leslie Silko, Michael Doris, Irvin Morris, a Navajo man and professor of literature and Navajo studies at Dine College, disputed a lot of the claims made by Nasdij. First of all, saying that Nasdij is gibberish, and that Nasdij had claimed it actually meant to become again in a certain language, but he said that's nonsense, it doesn't mean anything. Second of all, he pointed out, quote, He seems to know some facts about the culture, but he has no sensibility of it emphasizing the different ways that Navajo traditions were mischaracterized or just overall not written about in an authentic way, but just uh, reciting the facts kind of way that didn't actually match up with the sentimental value that would normally be assigned to certain things. For example, Morris commented on the books, quote, Every Navajo he meets seems to live in a Hogan. No one has really lived in Hogan since HUD, Housing and Urban Development. Housing started being built on the reservation in the 60s. Only people who are extremely t traditional live in Hogan's. He also went on to say, you have to be really traditional to have never seen inside a library because one of the main Navajo characters in one of Naj Dij's stories claimed to have never even seen a library and was entranced by it. He also seemed especially irked at this description of a mutton-filled taco that the Navajos would eat, saying, quote, Now that's just disgusting. We love our mutton, but no one would use it in a Navajo taco. The spices just don't mix. Nasdij claimed that his mom would teach him about his culture by using special symbols and signs in a way that was very personalized to help his learning about his ancestors and his family and just generation from generation what they kept with them, what cultural traditions and things like that, but in a very personalized way, which is just against the way it would normally be taught, says Morris, saying, quote, that's a communal activity. To have a sign by yourself is highly aberrant behavior, like holding a church service for yourself. Nasdij said that his mom was part of the water flowering clan, which doesn't even exist. I could go on and on, the point being that he claimed a lot of things that have no backing to them whatsoever and were fully disputed by actual Navajo people. When asked why, despite his suspicions and then eventually debunking, 
he didn't pursue legal action against him, Morris said, quote, I've always been bothered by the false claim to the Dine identity by Nazdij, but if I spent my time tracking down every white writer pretending to be Navajo, I'd have no time left to do anything else. Which is really a quote to sit with, and we will get back to that in a minute. During pre-production time of the movie, Dawa Libby sought more answers from Nazdij, but Nazdij had abruptly fled the area, not only not answering questions, but he suddenly claimed he had moved back to live on the reservation. He got Tina, his wife, to pick up the phone, though Dawa Libby did, and did confirm independently with her some of the lies that Nazdij had been living. Tina did fess up to some of it. And that led Dawa Libby to realize that, quote, this wasn't just a fraud against the intellectual community, but against the entire Navajo nation, and that Nazdij needed to apologize. Then the project did finally get scrapped entirely, and Dawalibi said, quote, People like Nazdij can't exist without some sort of complicity. The uproar over Nazdij's true identity was not just about the readers he had betrayed and the Navajo people whose writing opportunities were denied because their space was filled by a white man. It was also criticism directed towards the media because they had very willingly believed in Nazdij's identity without any corroboration. Esquire did eventually admit that the 1995 essay they had had published involved sending a check to someone who went by the name Tim Nazdij Barris, which was a combination of the Nazdij nickname and Timothy Patrick Barris. Also, a victim of Nazdij's constant anger and defensiveness was this author and journalist Ted Conover, who reviewed the Blood Runs a book for the New York Times, and he gave it a good review, but his he did make some unfavorable comments about it just in terms of the lack of fact-checking and a sense that there just wasn't enough enough clarification in certain areas of Nazdij's upbringing and background. He was left with some questions about it, and so he was just saying in his book review, I wish he had divulged more details about that to clear up some things and tie up some loose ends here and make the story more complete. But this so offended Nazdij and made him feel defensive over his work that it prompted him to send a defensive email to this author and critic criticizing the review completely. In an ironic twist, Nazdij himself has shared disdain for people who lie in their writing. In an essay titled The Saddest Book I Ever Read, he said, quote, The accumulated weight of fictions, when added up, form a place that never was and a time that never happened. Fictions like this are murderous. They pass off illusion as fact, stereotype as portraiture. Counterfeit comes to be seen as the genuine article. It kills people, it kills culture, it kills even the shadow of truth. Yet, years later, he said, quote, I understand that a trust was violated, I'm not defending it. So Nazdij does not really defend his choice to take on the identity of a Navajo man and reap the benefits in terms of the fame and fortune it happened to bring to him, but he also is seemingly aware of what he was doing, he just does not seem to regret it as much as he may want you to think. What is called an epilogue was added to one of these investigative reports on Nazdij's true identity after the fact, and this writer updated his piece saying the following in another weird plot twist. Quote, When I approached Nazdij last week via email after many attempts to find a working phone number, I received a reply from someone called Mike Willis, who identified himself as Nazdij's assistant. He told me that Nazdij was high in the Sierra Madres in Mexico without access to phones or the internet. 
He offered no sense of when Nazdij might return, adding that it was quite sad that the author couldn't defend himself. When asked for a phone number for either himself or Tina Giovanni, Willis did not reply. Shortly after, Nazdij's website was taken offline and all mentions of his daughter, Cree Barris, was removed from the archives of Giovanni's blog. The next day, the blog was also shut down, and queries sent to Nazdij's email address went unanswered. But on Monday, the following post appeared on Nazdij's blog. For those seeking refuge, consult the hyena. Follow those directions to the old hotel. To find N, take the stairs to the roof. Bring your medication. The view is magnificent. And safe. You know who you are. Do not answer questions. Sealed. They do not care about you. You know that. Do not be fooled. Someone will. You will connect. Follow the hyena's path. Mike. So essentially, an assistant to Nazdij, allegedly, a man called Mike Willis, who very well could have just been Nazdij himself pretending to be his own assistant, left a very bizarre list of instructions on his blog to basically tell journalists, just believe me, essentially, because he essentially said you can find yourself if you... The problem is with you, and you need to do some inner reflection and find yourselves in this life, and I will not comment going forward, is the implicit framing there. This caused further outrage because Navajo people specifically were upset that he had not only, a white man had not only pretended to be one of them and to understand their stories and pretend that he could articulate them in an accurate way when it ended up being misrepresentative because it wasn't authentic, they were also upset, again, by the media who did not verify a lot of Nasdij's claims about his upbringing. And so that raises a lot of questions about the publishing industry and why certain hoaxes end up happening. Because this was not a one-time thing, we talked about JT Leroy on a previous episode, and we have more author hoaxes to talk about on future episodes of Betrayals. So why does this keep happening? There are a couple of layered reasons. One is that Native culture in general is appropriated very much, and especially in the literature world, because in 1990, the Native American Arts and Crafts Act passed, and this basically makes it a federal crime to sell art that you label as quote-unquote Indian if you don't actually belong to a federally recognized tribe. So you can't actually try to sell, you know, quote-unquote Indian dream catchers, for example. That is against the law. But that doesn't apply to literature. It applies to certain crafts. It does not apply to books. So you can write your story and it doesn't violate the law if you claim certain ancestry in a certain upbringing that you didn't actually have. In addition to having a legal, a lack of legal obstacles to stopping this type of thing from happening, this false identity situation, there is just in general a fascination among some countries and cultures with Navajo culture and with Native culture, and that ends up being very tokenizing in ways or very just incomplete and appropriated instead of appreciated. Morris, Irving Morris, who helped debunk a lot of the claims about his people, claimed to know 14 different white authors, actually, 14 different authors who wrote as Native characters in their books. That was what they did, and they wrote mystery novels like that. There's also, we're going to talk about in a future episode, when we talk about the fandom around this yeehaw culture, this western cowboys and the, you know, quote-unquote cowboys and Indians uh, situation, that type of 
dynamic is fascinating to some people. And so we're going to talk about the fandom of Karl May. Karl May was a man who wrote a lot of books from the perspective of a native man, which he was not. They, I mean, there were Karl May festivals every year, Karl May theater recreations of his books, the Karl May Museum. There's so much to get to, but that's for another episode. But anyway, the point being that there is this weird, nearly fetishization of Native culture in white society, in European society, American society, and that is allowed to happen not just legally, but just culturally, it's viewed as okay. Again, it goes back to that thought of collective groupthink. If you think something is offensive to do or not right, but you're surrounded by people who permit it, you are kind of socialized to think, maybe I am the crazy one, maybe it is okay. And that is really harmful. So you need people there to help um, stand together in opposition to things that are offensive like this. Another reason why these literary hoaxes can happen is because Memoirs, first of all, are not fact-checked by publishers because that would take way too long and there's so much that's unverifiable about what happened to you decades ago or whatever the case may be, time frame-wise. There's just, it's just logistically impossible to fact-check everything in a memoir so that does not happen. The other thing is that the, the relationship between publishers and their clients is very unique in the sense that it's supposed to be open but only so open and... It seems like publishers worry about crossing an invisible line by probing too much into questioning the legitimacy of the struggles that their client wrote about. If a client writes about some very traumatic situations like fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, the death of a child, it's really hard to try to validate that subject matter. It feels then that you may be gaslighting them. And so publishers may walk on eggshells a bit with their clients in those cases as well as publishers don't want to jeopardize their deal with their client ever and make their client angry and storm out and see someone else, then there's the thought that publishers may see movie potential and other big potential from just ignoring any, any blind spots, any offensiveness they see in a story, or just any mistruths. So there are, in general, in human psychological barriers to pointing out something wrong and threatening a relationship, threatening a good relationship with someone. People don't want to go there. So that's another variable here to consider, and ultimately what can be learned from Nazdij is that stories deserve to be told by the people who have lived them, because there's just so much layers and nuance to a person's story and upbringing. Bizarrely, the biggest takeaway I get from this story comes from Nazdij himself when he wrote about what happens when people pretend to be someone they're not, saying, quote, the, they pass off illusion as fact and stereotype as portraiture. Counterfeit comes to be seen as genuine. And it kills culture, it kills the shadow of truth. Frankly, that's when he was most honest by saying that. If we don't give people permission to tell their own story and try to tell it for them, of course we're going to perpetuate stereotypes. And of course we're going to perpetuate uh, false conceptions of how different people live, of what time frame they live in. That's another variable of this fetishization of certain cultures because that then uplifts certain aspects of them that aren't even common. Like the fact that Nazdij talks as if every Navajo person still lives on a reservation. There are just a lot of, a lot of layers to an existence that you cannot bring to fruition and truly describe accurately in writing if you are posing as someone who's lived through it when you haven't. It's just not that way. Going back to that quote from Amir Barlev about the My Kid Could Paint That documentary, 
these stories are just as much about cameras as they are about the paintbrushes, meaning that these stories are so interesting and at times very concerning, like in Nasdaq's case, because of the messenger and the framing of the message, not necessarily the content of the message itself. That's the ultimate takeaway to me with these stories, is that it's not like ignore the messenger, but let's also stop to think more about the message. With the case of this child prodigy painter, Marla Olmsted, the story is about the fascination is with her parents and how much they were they were pageant parents in a way that were really pressuring their four-year-old way too much and giving her commands of how to paint and pressuring her and all of that, as opposed to the focus being more on the art itself and why we like the art, why we don't like the art, why we view the art as a certain, having a certain worth to it. And of course, that cannot be entirely disentangled from the artist, but I'm just saying that more attention should probably be put on the actual art and the questions that raises, because sometimes then too much attention is on the actors in the situation, and these parents being that example of maybe they weren't up to anything shady, and there are other variables here that are worth more of our attention. Similarly, Nasdaq's motives do interest me and are very peculiar, but what is more worth spending time thinking about are the elements that he characterized inaccurately about Native culture and about the culture itself and why he felt like he wanted to profit off of it and feel like he was a part of it. Ultimately, these stories just go to show that as humans, we want to believe what people tell us. We naturally want to believe that we are being told the truth, and we naturally want to believe certain narratives are true. It's exciting to think you've reclaimed a bit of your childhood by buying a child prodigy's painting. It's exciting to feel like you're represented if you feel like this author represents truly your culture. And so to have the veil lifted off of any of that is very, very upsetting and can lead to a lot of denial. And ultimately, what's important here is impact over intent, and looking at impact here, in Nasdich's case, we do need to look at the fact that people abetted him along the way, and he almost had a movie made about his story as if it were true, and so they ought to have focused less on him and more on his claims and the actual substance they were working with, not the potential to make him a movie star or a producer or whatever. There are a lot of other variables to unpack here, and we will continue this conversation in future episodes of this Betrayals series of episodes. But ultimately, the takeaway I'd like to leave you with is just that thought that we need to pay attention to who's telling a story and who's describing something and how much social variables are at play in how we are viewing the situation and what is there there? Is there a there there at all? Is this a crime story or not? Is this a story of taking an identity on that's not your own or not? And really unpacking what that means is worth thinking about. I will leave you with that. Thank you for listening, and I will see you for a new episode of How to Stand next week. It may be another episode of Betrayals, or it may be another one in the toy series of episodes just to keep the mood lighter. I switch back and forth these days, but either way, we'll talk about the culture surrounding a certain work of art or literature or other fandom-related thing in the next episode. So thank you for listening. See you next week.